You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, I need to, I guess, introduce the footnote a little bit. It's, uh, it has to do with people confusing two terms, the first being per anum, which means via the anus, like you can deliver medication per anum by the anus. But there's also per annum, which is the one most people are familiar with, which means yearly, per annum. <laughs> and the, sometimes these are uh, confused to, uh, to interesting effect. The correct answer to the question, what is the birth rate per annum is zero, one hopes. The internet provides many fine examples of the perils of confusing the two terms. The investment firm that offers 10% interest per annum is likely to have as many takers as the Nigerian screenwriter who describes himself as, quote, capable of writing six movies per annum, or the Sri Lankan importer whose classified ad declares, 3,600 metric tons of garlic wanted per annum. The individual who poses the question, how many people die horse riding per annum, on the Ask Jeeves website has set himself up for crude, derisive blowback in the comments block, if not a visit from the local Humane Society. (laughs) These are the kind of distractions I live for. Mary Roach is the author of Stiff and Spook, Bonk and Packing for Mars. Her new book is Gulp. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, always a pleasure, Rick. Mary, as I was reading this book, I kept thinking of the relationship between the humor genre and the horror genre. And I flashed on this quote by Stephen King. It's a very famous quote from Dance Macabre. And I think this really speaks to the way you write your books if you, with a little bit of inversion, as it were. He says that, I recognize terror as the finest emotion, and so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. I'm not proud. And I think <laughs> <laughs> if you, in, in the humor world, wit would be, I guess, the equivalent of terror. And there's plenty of wit here. And then I guess a good joke would be the equivalent of horror, and they meet in the middle with the gross act. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I there's a there are, there's a reason that I choose the topics that I choose because there's ample room for however you want to describe it, horrifying, grossing out, uh, and at the same time, people are learning something. But definitely, the humor is an offshoot of that element. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about this book is that, to a degree, I think it almost seems when I was looking back on your career, you made a, sort of a career of talking about taboos in our society, haven't you? Yes, taboos, uh, specifically regarding the human organism, the human body. A, a lot of it is, well, de- yeah, de- including death, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 like, I like the taboo because partly because... Because it's taboo, a lot of people stay away from it, so it's left for me. I'm kind of a bottom feeder, it's like the stuff that no one else wants. Like, I'll do that. I'll take that. I, I got it. So, um, yeah, definitely. And, and the taboo is always 
I, it, it, I think it, it lends itself to humor a bit too, because there's a certain tension and discomfort with the topic and people welcome the opportunity to laugh. It kind of heightens the, the, the release of tension or something. So I, I find that the two work well together, taboo and humor. When you honed in on this particular subject, did this come out of the research from your previous book? Yeah, partly. I I have to say the the toilet chapter in Packing for Mars was one of my finest moments in that I feel that I took it to a, a level way beyond the point to which it had ever been taken before. So I, I was quite, uh, I, I really lost myself in that. And it was a lot of fun. And people, of course, that's the chapter everybody commented about because people seem to share my 12-year-old uh, boy interests. And so, yeah, that I, I suppose that did lead it, funnel me into this this direction. And I also it was a couple of other experiences that I'd had around the same time. And and all and years ago, I'd done a story at the, I was on flatulence where I'd been sent to the Beano Company's research labs. Beano being the drops you put in your beans to the enzyme that breaks them down, so you're less gassy. And I had gone there to do a magazine piece, and I couldn't. I wasn't allowed to work in all the best material. So it's just been sitting in the back of my head all these years. I've got this great material, and I really want to use it somewhere. And no, no one will ever let me. So I'm gonna to have to put it in a book. So well, there's that too. The book is so much fun, and, and one, it, it, it's a subject that seems at first. I remember when you told me about this. I thought, well what the heck can she write about? I, but once you get going, it's the perfect uh, avenue for you to riff on the humor and also evoke to a certain degree a sense of wonder. And I think that's another mm -hmm. really important part of your books yeah. in that you explore our, the, the human body, the human organism in a way that makes us go, wow, that's really incredible. Yeah, I, I, I don't really want people to... to I'm not trying to get people to say, oh, that's gross. I'm trying to get people to say, oh, I thought that would be really gross, but it's really interesting. I'm also gross, but so I, I and because these things are taboo, there's a you know, very strong reluctance to consider them. So I want to kind of take people by the hand and say, look, yeah, it's a little bit gushy and disgusting, but it's amazing what's going on in there, what, what all of your organs are doing for you all the time, unbeknownst to you, with no credit, with no respect. So yeah, let's replace a little bit of that revulsion with curiosity and even awe. I, and I think yeah. you do. Now, as you put this book together, when we read it, it's a seamless reading experience. We enter and eventually we exit. <laughs> yes. Plop. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm wondering about, in terms of researching this stuff, did you research it kind of in the order that you uh, that it came out? As it were? <laughs> no, I, I'm um, I'm always researching what in the order in which researchers can accommodate me. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's got a project going on in June, I'm there in June, even if that's the rectum, and I haven't even thought about the mouth. So whatever order the the projects because uh, i'm usually I, i'm trying to find a setting a place to go person to profile in their work uh i'm i'm trying to find a, a person in their work to profile i should say uh, so i'm very much doing it out of order i i know I, I don't really know i mean i know where it'll go in the book but it's not the order in which i'm doing it so you accumulate a mass of material and then distill it down into the its final form 
well, I as soon as I have enough material for a chapter, I like to write it, mm-hmm. even though I don't know exactly where it'll be, how I'll fit it into the to the chapters on either side of it, and I may have to rejigger the beginning and the end of it a little bit to make it to make the progression logical from one page to the next. But I like I'm the kind of person that if I don't if I left all the writing for the end and just did the research, I would have this tremendous buildup of anxiety. Because you see the pile of reported material growing and the pile of written pages is still zero. I, I think I'd have to, it would just un, completely unhinge me. Well, one of the things I think you do very well in this book, I love the transitions from one to the next because you literally take us from one sentence, the sentence at the end of one chapter leads us right into the other. And, and in this book, that's particularly appropriate, I suppose. But. Yeah, yeah. Some of them, some of them were ended up being really logical and perfect mm-hmm. progressions. And I didn't even realize that. For example, the you know, Horace Fletcher, the chewing guy, you know, the, the, the extreme, the extreme chewing guy, the Fletcherizing man. Uh, it, as it turns out the person who had directly debunked his work was someone who came before. Anyway, the two sort of, it was easy to, or it worked well to play the one off. One set up the other in a way I didn't even realize until I started writing them. Uh, the stomach guy in the yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and let's talk a little bit about uh, some of these, uh, the specifics, because I think what, the other thing you do too is you create these great characters for us. And they're really fun and interesting, and we love them all, which gets us, you know, makes all this stuff that you're telling us, no matter how much it kind of might make scarify us in the abstract terms, you render it in concretely terms with characters we really care about, like uh, Sue uh, Langstaff. So talk about, like, mm-hmm. meeting these characters and, and becoming part of their lives. Sure, yeah. Sue Langstaff is one. Erica Saletti, the saliva expert, this beautiful Italian woman who has devoted her career to the study of saliva. Uh, And Sue Langstaff, the the, the nose, the professional, the sensory analyst. Uh, Both of them, what I love about, well, all of the, really, all of the researchers is that their enthusiasm and passion for this topic that the rest of us never even give thought to it's very infectious. You spend time with, you spend an afternoon in the presence of one of these people and suddenly this door is open to their world and you see what really floats their boat and what they're excited about. And that it rubs off on you, on me. And then I think in turn, I, I try to share that with the reader. So sort of, sort of there, it's not, it's not just the way I write it, it's the way they've presented it to me and their excitement and delight and passion for what they do and some of the things that they're doing I mean, they're not curing cancer you know, they're studying saliva or or how to figure out what went wrong with a beer based on the specific defect smell that your nose can pick out um, so they they bring the subject to life in a way that i could never manage just reading other people's accounts or journal papers or whatever sort of secondary sources is just to sit down and spend an afternoon with somebody whose life revolves around this is to my mind the only way to to make it I mean other people do it differently but that's that's how it seems to me the best way to to make it compelling and and you know to, to sort of share their excitement well too it must be fun for you 
Well, it's all, yes, it's always, it always really gets down to like, how do, how do, what would, what would be most fun for me? Uh, just, it's, it's more appealing for me to go and meet somebody. I mean, I like people. I love scientists. Uh, I, uh, it's rare to meet a scientist who isn't just a wonderful person to sit down and spend an, an afternoon with. They're, they're bright, they're open-minded, they're engaging, they're incredibly generous to spend this time. They're not being paid. They don't know what I'm going to write, if I'm going to get the facts right. They, they're, they're, they're taking this leap of faith, inviting me in, saying, absolutely, come spend an afternoon, eat up my time, say what you will. Uh, so it's a part of my work that I love and I would really feel you know people say have you ever thought about writing fiction and of course you can do research for fiction but um, to, to think about trying to make things up in my head and, and internalizing that I would feel a sense of loss well I I really love all the the people you you introduce us to and it's so interesting too the the guide you give us to the you know the way our our bodies work so uh, tell me a little bit about a sense of smell which you investigate because I've always really been interested in smell uh, it seems to me that there has anybody tried to discover the uh, chromatic scale of smell I mean there's one for for notes I would presume there must be a smell equivalent of that there there probably is I think it would be huge it seems like there's an infinite number of combinations of molecules and smells. I mean, I, there's this wonderful book, The Handbook of Fruit and Vegetable Flavors, and it's a very fat textbook, and flavor is predominantly taking place in the nose. The, the taste and the tongue are involved, but most of flavor, 80%, is smell. It's, it's the gases as you hold food in your mouth, and they waft up into the nose. The, there's a chart in that book, uh, the number... Uh, uh, I believe it was pineapple, the number of chemical compounds, specific flavor notes, 714 in the aroma of pineapple, 714 different flavor molecules. That, that, unreal how complex and, and how what is going on in the human nose when you eat something. I had, I had no idea. So I don't know that they, I don't know of a scale, but probably out there there is such a thing. One of the things I thought was interesting was the complexity of the language needed to describe smells and and odors and aromas. Yeah, that that was how Sue Langstaff described. Well, she described what she does as being able to and like she compared it to a sim listening to music, a symphony. And and when you first are exposed to music, you just hear the overall music you go oh, there's a lovely piece of music but when you are educated in music and you start to be able to pick out the specific instruments or the themes that come out that come in and they're played this way and then in retrograde or whatever it is you're learning a lang you're learning a language you're now able to parse this larger entity and and understand it in a way that you couldn't before and the same thing happens with aroma, with, with flavor. You're, you learn these individual components, whether they're good or bad, whether they're defects or good qualities. You learn, oh, there's black cherry. I recognize that. Now, whereas in the beginning, you have a glass of wine or beer, whatever it is, you, you, you just sort of taste it and you go, yum or yuck. That's your two <laughs> options. But with over time and, and learning, and, and you can buy kits, they're, they're little bottles of reference molecules, all the, the different aromas that 
go into, say, red wine or white wine, and it's called Le Nez du Vin, and you learn the indiv- It's like learning vocabulary. It's a vocabulary list in, in a sense. And, and when you've learned those individual reference molecules, you can pick them out when you hold the wine in your mouth, and, and now you can identify them and put a name to them, which is almost impossible when you haven't done that. So we haven't educated your nose. And I was blown away because I just, I kind of had this suspicion, like, oh, isn't this all really kind of bullshit? These, who can do that? I drink wine, I go, oh, that's kind of nice, kind of complex. I don't know what's in there, but it's, but no, in fact, you can teach your nose and people in that industry, partly by exposure over time, just being exposed to it and learning it in the same way you absorb a language a bit by just being exposed to it. And also by, by learning, by, by, by training your nose. You can train to be a sensory analyst for a specific industry or product, whether it's chicken McNuggets or apples or cat food in one instance. Uh, it's, a, it's like 60 hours of training. It's, it's, uh, you are sitting down and learning the language of smell, and it's really interesting. So it, that, so it is a science and not an art. It's a little of both, mm-hmm. yeah. But it is it, it is a it's a it's a specific process uh, of educating oneself and and learning. You're you're learning to recognize combinations of molecules. Your your because your gas your nose mm-hmm. is kind of a gas chromatograph. It's it's able to detect all these different uh, things going on, and and it, then you then have to learn how to translate that information and recognize it and put a name to it. I'm just waiting for somebody to invent the the uh, odor synthesizer so I can uh, <laughs> keyboard myself out. <laughs> yeah, to be able to compose <laughs> compose with odor. Somebody there is uh, there was a guy who worked at Frito Lay who George Epen was his name and he had there's a patent for what he did and that was he took he had instruments and sounds relating to different smells and he compo- he had a composition relating to the complex combinations of flavors in a it was a kind of salsa chip with a bunch of different flavors and he had written kind of a it was a small musical interlude that represented the different flavors as they unfolded in your nose and mouth now one of the things you do i, I thought it was really interesting that you debunked the idea natural flavors are not natural yeah i see all sorts of Everything I buy says it includes natural flavors. I always thought that meant that they were derived from natural ingredients, not intended. Actually, that is that 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 paragraph is gone from the book because oh. it is when it says natural flavors, mm-hmm. it's like vanilla comes from wood. You can make that from from wood. They are natural. They're just not the actual item. Mm-hmm. So cause van, to to use actual vanilla would be phenomenally expensive. But they, but they can derive those same molecules from other natural sources. So they're naturally sourced. They're just not the actual item that you think they are. Like Orangina, when it says natural orange flavors, th- that may be coming from the leaves of a citrus tree. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not sure I was th- th- signing up to drink orange leaves. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, a little, it's a little sneaky, but, the, but they're, uh, you know, they're trying to get away from, you know, they know that people are very uncomfortable when it's a, a chemical that's synthesized and not found in nature. So they found a way to kind of get around that. You talk a little bit about pet food and, and having two dogs. I was glad to know that the dog food makers are working hard to make sure that that dog food smells not so bad coming out as it does when going in. 
Yeah, the pet food industry has has certain uh, their their holy grail would be a product that for dogs, okay, a product that smells incredibly appealing to a dog. In other words, a dog will come into the room, smell it, run across the room, and if you can get a dog to the bowl, the dog will eat because they're very smell-driven. On the other hand, if it really smells good to the dog, like things like cadaverine and putrescine, and the, uh, the, if it smells great to the dog, it may smell repulsive to the owner, and they have, the owner has to be okay with opening it up and pouring it out into the bowl. So they've got they've got to balance those two things. And if it smells good to the human, then possibly the dog it will be overpowering because the dog sense of smell is, is like about a thousand times more sensitive. So they got to make sure it doesn't be it's not off-putting to the dog. And then on top of that, there's a concern about is there any way that we could create a product where the the dog crap will smell less revolting. So they're even to that level like they want they're worried about the texture of the dog crap and they're worried about the smell of it. And and so they're trying to the holy grail would be this product that smells great to everybody uh, to the extent that even processed by the dog and you know on the lawn when the person picks it up it will be not runny and not too um, horrible smelling. <laughs> I just never thought that they thought that much of us. And I'm, to be honest, I'm glad. <laughs> a debt of thanks to the pet food industry. A debt of thanks to the pet food industry. One of the things you talk about are our taboos as to what we will and will not eat. And uh, this, yeah. whether in our culture, we're not too keen on, on sweet breads, but in other cultures, that that's the bee's knees. And I thought you'd like you to talk about that, those kind of taboos and how that kind of plays through the whole, the theme of taboo runs through this this mm -hmm. book, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the I wrote a chapter that has to do with you know, how we decide what is good to eat and what is repulsive and not to be eaten. And it's almost entirely cultural. We, uh, in this country are particularly squeamish about organ meats. We export, I don't have the numbers in my head, but we export hundreds of thousands of pounds of so-called variety meats, as in brains, lips, hearts. Um, Russia, Mexico, the Philippines, they're all, they're, they're like, we'll take those. We, yep, bring them, the best part. Send them our way. Uh, they get them for cheap, and they're like, why don't you people eat these things? And a lot of uh, and the thing with organ meats that's particularly interesting, and this grew, uh, it's sort of, it's the chapter after the pet food chapter, um, because the one of the things that they, they use uh, to make pet food more appetizing, particularly dog food, is is its, it's liver. It's, it's, and it's proteins from liver, um, guts, viscera. That's what a wild dog or cat goes for first is the, is the entrails because they're the tastiest and they're all, they're also nutritionally, there's a lot more vitamins and minerals. It's, it's the best thing for you to eat. If you can, if you're, if you can only eat one part of your prey, that's what you go for is the viscera. You don't go for the steak or the chops. We're the only people that do that. And so I spent some time up in the Arctic with, because uh, in the Arctic, if you want to get fruits and vegetables, you can't grow anything on the tundra. It's really, you've got moss and lichen and some little tiny plants and berries at a certain time of year. There's not a lot of vitamins and minerals that you can get from growing uh, fruits and vegetables. So up there in the fruits and vegetables group, health educators, <laughs> it says 60 to 90 grams of organ meats. That's your fruits and vegetables. That's where you're getting the, the nutrition. So, uh, and, and 
hunters there you, after after a kill, like I say, it's a seal or whatever you've just killed, you um, to eat the viscera while they're still while the animals even still warm when they're incredibly fresh is that's the best way to do it and that's when all the, the there's the most nutritional value and so somehow in our culture we've come around to dismissing most of that and finding it off-putting or disgusting uh and so that the chapter was just sort of exploring why that is and how did we come to be that way and how easy is it to change a culture's eating habits during world war Two when there was a lot of um rationing going on the the, the um steaks cuts the, the 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 traditional acceptable meats were being shipped overseas so what was left for consumption here were the viscera the organ meats and the government really went out of their way to try to promote eating organ meats they changed them from offal or gl glandular meats was another term that was being used then very off-putting so then they, they started calling them variety meats so it's like a sort of a, like, you know, you picture them dressed up in a little spangly outfit, variety meats or tidbits and, and, and all these recipes where you would, of course, be disguising the origin of the food. Because what, what's upsetting to us is, is that they look like animal parts, which is what they are. And that reminds us that we're eating other organisms and also that we too, you know, you look at a liver and you think, oh, yeah, I have a liver too. So you're... You don't. We don't like to be reminded of that when we eat. We don't really want to think about that. So, anyway, there were ways that you would chop them up, and you'd make sausage, or you'd make you'd do everything you could to disguise the fact that you were eating someone else's organs. One of the things you talk about in this book is you give us kind of a tour of the of various medical uh, quackeries throughout this book. The first one you talked you talked about this a little bit earlier was uh, Fletcherizing. Yes. And this is such an interesting little bit of corner of history. Fletcher Fletcherizing was, was an amazing this and the well I should say Fletch, Fletcherizing Horace Fletcher was a a man he wasn't an MD or even a PhD. He had a fair amount of independent financing and he got obsessed with the notion. He was a, he was a new he was an efficiency buff. Everything he liked efficiency to make the most out of what you have, whether it's typing on both sides of a sheet of paper and, and in his pe letters at Harvard, you know, there's no margin. He's written on both sides. He's like, get the most out of everything. You and have he, a great incident. You talk about that, how hard it was to read his, his papers. It was. It was very difficult to read. His, it drove me nuts. But he believed that if you chewed your food extremely thoroughly, and we're talking some 700 chews for a bite of shallot, is the one one example he gave, but hundreds of chews per bite, you would could then he believed you would make you would be able to take advantage of more of the nutrients and you could cut down your intake by two thirds to a half. You could have less protein, less calories because you were extracting more nutritional benefit from the foods that you eat. Well, it's a and it's an intuitively appealing notion, but it discounts the role of the stomach. The stomach is able to turn just about everything, with about two or three exceptions, into a, a slurry. It really, you put in, like, and William Beaumont was, a, was a, the, the guy, first guy who looked into how the stomach works and what it does. He would put these things like a bunch of cabbage or some boiled meat or whatever, whatever or, or bread into the stomach in a little mesh bag, a living stomach, and then pull it out in an hour or two, and there's nothing there. It's been completely reduced to liquid. So the stomach can do that. You don't need you don't need to do that in your mouth. And so Fletcher 
didn't seem to realize that. But he, he got a lot of traction. He had friends in high places. He got himself on the Commission for Relief in Belgium in World War One, and he, he was trying to, you know, people were, mili the military was trying to get people to Fletcherize, thinking, great, we only need to give them half as much food. Think of the budget savings that we can we can do if we give them, if they can just chew it more thoroughly. You know, we, we're going to cut your rations in half. Just chew it twice as thoroughly. And he got, he took it surprisingly far, uh, considering there, there really wasn't a lot of, uh, medical merit to what he was to what he was saying it, it was so interesting to me that franz kafka was a front letcherizer yeah, it seems, i know it seems so perfect it seems like that you know that image that everybody sees of franz kafka with the great cheekbones and his eyes you know just kind of staring into the camera now i've to that image i've added him kind of morosely chewing <laughs> for hours and this woman what's her name margaret barnett who's who wrote a short history uh, in a, one of the histor historical journals, history journals. She wrote this description of, like, I, I, Franz Kafka's, she said Franz Kafka's father would hold the newspaper up to, so that he didn't have to, to, to look at his son grimly chewing for hours across the table. I just think of that scene in the Metamorphosis where they've thrown the apple on, on the, the beetle's back and it's just kind of rotting <laughs> i thought well that that's all tied together somehow 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 yeah new insights into franz kafka and and fletcherizing leads us to uh william beaumont and his his patient uh, alexis saint martin this is a great really great couple of characters that you give us and, and they seem <laughs> Like something like that could happen today. Too. Yeah, that was they were. Yeah, William Beaumont is the one I was just mentioning, where he would he would put the food into a stomach in a mesh bag, and so so Beaumont kind of inadvertently, without knowing it, had debunked Fletcher before Fletcher even had his idea, because uh, Beaumont's the one who would put the the meats and breads and things into, and the stomach belonged to Alexis Saint Martin, and Alexis Saint Martin. This this all went down and started in 1822, and it spanned several decades. Alexis St. Martin was a trapper uh, in what is uh, in, the, in the Michigan territories, and he was accidentally shot at the um, trading post of the American Fur Company. Somebody's rifle went off, a lot of duck shot in his side, blew open a hole in his stomach that didn't heal all the way. And the army doctor there, William Beaumont, took the boy, he was 18, took him into his care, the stomach did not heal, and, and here's where it gets interesting. Like, did Beaumont have an aha moment of? Because Beaumont does say, "Wow, I could when he lies on his side, I can peer into the stomach." It's almost like those little, those Easter eggs that you'd used to look inside with a little hole. Oh, look at the bunnies inside. He would peer into the stomach. He's like, "Oh, oh my God, I can see human digestion right there." And I wonder if there was a moment where he thought to himself, "Hey." This could be my ticket to uh, fame and fortune. Then I could, um, uh, if only this hole were to stay open. Now, there's there's one eyewitness who claims that that's what happened. Beaumont himself in his diaries says, I did everything in my power to heal that hole. And so who you believe is who you believe. And maybe it was somewhere in between. I think he probably did spend some time trying to help the guy heal, but uh, at a certain point might have been kind of excited that the hole was staying open and he could do these experiments, which he went on to do for 30 years. 30 years? 30 on and off. Alexis St. Martin would sometimes take off, like just 
be uh, fed up, take off. He had a drinking problem. Fed a up. lot of kids fed up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Everything I say now is uh, is a bad pun. So uh, St. Martin would run away, uh, and then eventually somebody would track him down and say, hey, Beaumont really, really would like to hire you again. Because he, he did pay him after the first few months. He was paid for his other duties as assigned. Uh, he, so St. Martin would come back, and this would go on for a while, and then St. Martin would get fed up and or get exasperated and take off again. So uh, it was an int- they had an interesting relationship. It was they, – they were f- – kind of a mutual dependency. They, they both needed each other for different reasons, both resented each other for, for, for different reasons, and uh, would be in each other's lives on and off th- through the end. It sounds like a marriage. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, one of the things you have a lot of fun with, um, I'm wondering if you're familiar with a fellow named Lauren Coleman. He's a, the, a yes. Fordian researcher, and he... he Lauren Coleman, I know that name. He's known for works on Bigfoot. Chris, yeah, cryptozoology. Yeah, yes, cryptozoology. yes, yes, Bigfoot, yep. Well, one of the things he talks about a lot in his work is what he calls the name game. And <laughs> this is something that is all over this book. You have so much fun with this, and you find all these great characters. Oh, oh, yes, their names. Yes, 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 absolutely. This book, I wasn't looking for them, but... Time and time again, for example, in the saliva chapter, I, I was talking about how the enzymes in saliva, uh, the digestive enzymes in your body are the same enzymes that laundry detergent manufacturers put into laundry detergent because it makes sense. You're, the same things you're putting in your mouth, you're dropping in your lap. So it makes sense. And I called the soap and laundry, I, I called it, it's a, a soap and the Soap and Detergent Association and, or the Cleaning Institute, I forget which name they have now. And, but the guy who answered said, yeah, you need to talk to Luis Spitz, but without, without a trace of glee in his name. Just the, Luis, I'm like, wait, 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 rewind that tape. Excuse me? Luis Spitz? Yes, Luis Spitz, S-P-I-T-Z. So, you know, and then I'm like, I, 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 when I sort of um, compose myself again, I, I talked, I, I call Luis Spitz, or I emailed him, and he, he wrote back, I don't have knowledge, and uh, I, I do soap, not laundry. You need to contact Keith Grime. <laughs> And again, no delight taken at all. Just here is Dr. Grimes' phone number, email address. And then my my colonoscopist, the guy did my first colonoscopy, Jonathan Turdeman. (laughs) No, was not looking for these people. Um, There's a a paper in one of the medical journals on intestinal gas. It's by C. Fardy, F A R D Y, just like over and over, these drop in my lap, and I, it, I can't help myself. I have to put them in the book. It makes me seem incredibly immature. <laughs> well, it's a lot of fun, and and I think that it, it uh, makes the science stuff. Well, the way you write about the science stuff is really lively and and entertaining, and I think a lot of this has to do maybe with a a process of subtraction that you go through, that. You seem to know exactly what to tell us to excite that sense of wonder, give us some stuff that we never thought about, and give us a new perspective, mm-hmm. but in a bare minimum of space and in a way that's really lively. Is this pour off the tip of your pen when you're writing? You, know, you sit down and it's just ins- inspiration strikes you and you send it off to your publisher? Mm, I spend a lot of time 
going back over things I've written and and if I find I'm always writing with a sense that the, the reader is about to put down the book and walk away and say oh this isn't very interesting so I am constantly aware like of uh, you know each paragraph I, I I'm thinking is this is this fascinating is it funny is it engaging in some way is it fresh because I don't I don't want to just be explaining for explaining's sake, it's got to, it's kind of got to earn its keep if it's going to be in the book. So the things that end up in the book are in there because they're surprising or fresh or funny. I'm by no means doing a comprehensive look at the entire elementary canal because first of all, I don't have, I don't have a degree in physiology and I don't, I don't have the ability to take it to that level. And, and a lot of it, you know, starts to get pretty complicated very fast. So so, uh, you know, I, but I'm on the same level as I'm starting out at the same place as my reader. So I have kind of a built in sense of how far they, they're interested in, in taking it. Uh, so what was the question? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does it just flow or is it? Well, it's, it's largely I- intuitive. If, I, if I'm, I just have to assume my readers are kind of in the, well, not necessarily in the same boat, but I'm, I'm. I'm I'm looking for the stuff that's kind of holy shit, not like yeah, no shit. <laughs> uh, saliva is an amazing substance, and, <laughs> as you tell us, as long as it stays inside of our mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the taboo, the the saliva taboo. This was almost became a philosophical discussion of the nature of the self and the boundaries of the self because there's this wonderful researcher at university of pennsylvania paul rosin who studied disgust for many years and he talked about the boundaries of the self saliva in your mouth you have no problem with you're drinking it all day long you're swallowing it it doesn't disgust you but as soon as it leaves your mouth even your own saliva and he did that experiment with a imagine your favorite bowl of soup how likely are you to eat it and now imagine a bowl of soup your favorite soup that you spit in and it went from like a hundred percent to zero. I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was just, people won't go near it. And it, even though it's our own saliva and it's going to come in contact with the soup, the moment you put the soup spoon in your mouth, people don't want anything to do with it. It's this bizarre, uh, uh, well, a lot of the body products. Uh, it, and, and he also talked about how you kind of extend the boundaries of yourself to include your loved ones, whether it's your children or your lover, you don't have a problem with their saliva or their whatever the body part body the body product is. You kind of you extend you extend yourself to include them. It's kind of a marker of intimacy, whether or not you're grossed out by their body products. So I I loved the, the work that he did was fascinating. One of the things I thought was was also interesting. Uh, no such things a mouth watering smell. That I, that I have such a hard time with. It's a study that was done at Harvard in the 60s. Uh, Alexander Kerr, I believe his name was. It was a monograph on stimulated saliva, which is stimulated by chewing, definitely. When you chew, it comes, it, it, it's, it's produced. And everybody, including myself, assumes that smell, uh, the smell of food, or even the thought of food, I think, causes it to be um, secreted in the mouth. But but Kerr did a study where he brought hungry people into his lab and he fried an egg in front of them so they could smell it, they could see it. And he had uh, them, it was a type 2 outflow recorder was the 
device, not a Lashley cup. That's that's later, the Lashley cup. So he had this, uh, he was measuring their outflow of saliva, and he didn't find an increase. And the subjects themselves absolutely disagreed, saying, I could feel it. I could feel it in my mouth. And he said, no, what's going on is when you start to think about eating and you think about putting food in your mouth, now you're aware that there's moisture in your mouth and you weren't thinking about it before. And I read his paper and I've seen his paper and another one that was done, not with a frying, not with an actual frying egg, but but a, a mask that was delivering smells. And that one is a little easier to dismiss because it doesn't really seem very reflective of a real life scenario. But I've seen both of those papers and I find it hard to believe just because of my own experiences that it, you do feel it. So, and there may be, there may be, somebody said there was a third paper out there somewhere where they might've found something, uh, to, a, a different finding. But anyway, that particular study, he found no difference, which is fascinating. And it could be, I mean, a lot of it is perception. You're really not thinking about saliva and suddenly you're, you're in a, a lab and they're measuring saliva. You're focusing on it. So, so they could have been an art and it could have been that that's what's going on. But anyway. One of the things I thought was, was interesting was some of the t- scientific terminology is itself a source of humor. Yes. I mean, w- once you start down the bolus road. <laughs> <laughs> bolus is one of my favorite words now. I think there needs to be a heavy metal band called Bolus. <laughs> Opening there, for Slayer. Yeah, there might be. There may be. Yeah. I think so, I, someone, when I, I mentioned this once in a, another interview, and someone sent an email saying they thought there was a Canadian band called Bolus. So maybe somebody else is on it already. But there, yes, the, the terminology. I also like nasal regurgitation, <laughs> which is the technical term for when you hork milk out your nose. <laughs> which is something that's actually likely to happen if you're drinking milk while reading this book. <laughs> so. if, you're, yeah, if you're drinking and laughing at the same time, you may be uh, practicing soon practicing na- nasal regurgitation. You talk about uh, bulimia. <laughs> There's one, there's one thing in here you say. You talk about somebody <laughs> who would catch and re- release several dozen donuts. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was um, uh, one of the, uh, the alternative to binge eating, or uh, you know, where you're eating and then throwing it up. If you don't or can't do that, one of the things that is done is called chew and spit, which is it's not very common because it grosses people. The, the, the idea of chewing and spitting stuff out is very off-putting. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not a popular um, <laughs> way to be bulimic. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, is, it is kind of catch and release. <laughs> Taking 20 donuts, just to, like, it, it is, it's kind of, yeah, it, you know, fishing, it, yeah, fishing without, you're catching the fish, but you're, you're never eating it. Yeah. You know, you're just letting it go. So, yeah. One of the things that is interesting is, of course, the your uh, talk about, and, and this is actually personal experience, the dinners that eat themselves out of their your pets. I was warned by by one of my the people that when my uh, gecko leopard gecko wasn't eating, he was. Uh-huh. Uh, they said, "Be careful; those mealworms will eat their way out." <laughs> yeah, this is eat, and so much so that there was a whole verb eat it to eat out. To eat out. That's the, 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 the people in the herpetofauna world uh, will talk about mealworms eating out. And I found this this guy, he runs a, Dick Tracy, he runs a lab at uh, University of Nevada, Reno, 
and he has reason to have a bunch of different reptiles there and and frogs uh, and frogs uh, reptiles usually chew their mm-hmm. meal so it's so right there it's a little implausible but the rumor is so persistent that he decided we could we could we could we can test this and i kind of goaded him on we got a uh, a urethral endoscope very thin little endoscope so it's got a camera and a light source so we could we could, we got the mealworm down in got the animal to consume the mealworm, which was was not tricky with the lizard because we could, they couldn't chew, couldn't chew, had to place it far back, so they just swallow it, and then we were able to see what was going on in the stomach. Okay, the mealworm is in there and it's alive because we pull it back out, and it recovers. Okay, it's in there and we're watching it, and it is just instantly not moving. Uh, and the other thing going on with a why would it even know to eat its way out? That's not a, that's not a behavior of the mealworm, but what is a behavior of the mealworm is to crawl underneath things. They don't like to be out in the open. They, they tend to crawl, burrow underneath things. So in the case where somebody has a dead lizard and they see a mealworm kind of sticking out of it, that's probably what's going on. But the, but at a glance, the person thinks, look at that. It's a mealworm that's sort of halfway sticking out. It ate its way out. That's why the animal died. So so these rumors, and, and they are very persistent rumors, and I would I would encourage anybody who is concerned about this to read that chapter because we spent the afternoon I can't tell you the number and no animals were harmed in the the doing of this they were sedated I'm sure they woke up and thought well that's kind of weird I'm strangely full but I don't remember eating <laughs> I was glad to see you consulted the vivarium which is a, a yes. fabulous store boy it's like a it's better than a zoo for the East for Bay a guy. Vivarium yeah Carlos Haslam is the manager that or the owner I can't remember but he's like you know what? In all these years, we've never seen it happen. We've never actually, we have no direct evidence that it's happened. You call the mealworm people, and of course they say, I mean, if, there, if it was going on, the mealworm people wouldn't tell you. But, but um, the, the folks who run the, um, the vivarium were like, no, this is not something we have any evidence at all for. It doesn't happen. Uh, but Dick Tracy, and I love that his name is Dick Tracy because he, he sleuthed it out. He uh, uh, set the whole thing up and did the experiment and... Uh, I actually have little video footage of the mealworm inside the stomach. Wow. Yeah. I think that Boing Boing might, I gave them that footage. I don't know. They ran that chapter as an excerpt of the book, mm-hmm. Boing Boing, the website. And I don't know if they included the footage, but it is, you can see the mealworm just kind of inert, hanging out <laughs> inside this pink stomach. And uh, yeah, anyway, so. You also talk about the refrigerated penguin stomach. Yes, yes. I would. Uh, I had a chapter on whether any organism could live inside another organism's stomach. We started with Jonah, and we made our way to a bunch of different scenarios. And I spoke to this uh, marine biologist, Terry Williams, who said that the penguin, the penguins, are able to effectively shut down digestion. Because they, they, you know, what they do is they they feed. They go out. They go a long way to to uh, collect the, the food far away from the nest. So they get the fish and they hold the, put the, the, they, they use the stomach as a grocery bag. They shut, they can shut down digestion and carry the fish back. Cause of course they, you know, you don't have, they don't have hands. They don't have backpacks. They don't have <laughs> shopping bags. So they put it in their stomach and it stays there and it isn't digested and they regurgitate it for the young. So I was just recommending the penguin stomach. If you had to spend time in a stomach, that would be what I would recommend. I'm going to avoid it being inside any stomachs, <laughs> I guess, except eventually the worms will get me. 
this book, of course, gets to the bottom of things. And there's a picture about smuggling. It's a picture of a car. Is that your car? No, it's not. It's a just it's a it's a stock photo of a like an old Packard or something. And with a it's bunch a, of junk in the trunk. With a with a trunk just crammed with suitcases and, and luggage. So it's a it's a crammed trunk, which is a uh, just a metaphor for uh, rectal smuggling, which happens with some frequency in in prisons. The rectum is used as a pocket, basically, to bring in things that you're not supposed to bring in. Whether it's tobacco or cell phones is a common one, particularly. A couple years back before we had smartphones, and there were some very small models of cell phone that could be easily uh, rectally smuggled. Mm -hmm. So I spent an afternoon at Avenal State Prison where they have a lot of problem with rectal smuggling of contraband, which is called hooping, as in through the hoop. (laughs) (laughs) Keistering is also a word to keister, yeah. You talk about, too, about how they... Keep it in, and and I'm wondering when you're there interviewing these people in prison. Yeah, talk about that experience. It sounds fun, but maybe a little bit threatening. Well, it, I sent this email to the Department of California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. I sent it to the public affairs person, fully expecting no reply, saying, you know, I'm writing this book, this kind of quirky look at the elementary canal, and I for the rectum, I want to talk about you know, overriding the defecation reflex and, and holding stuff in and constipation and all these. And I said, and it, and it seemed to make sense to talk to somebody who's who's really using the rectum for the purpose for which it evolved, but taking it to the next level. And I got this, I got, a, I got an email back saying, we have a huge problem with this at Avenal and, and I'd be happy to set you up to go visit and we can find um, a hooper for you to interview. And he said, would four hours be enough time? And I'm like, to to talk to a stranger about his rectum? I think so. I think so. So it was this. And, and I'm sitting there waiting for this guy. I'm, I call him Rodriguez. It's not his real name, understandably. And he's a, he's a, someone that came to mind as a, a very accomplished hooper. And, he, and I'm sitting in an office waiting for this guy to come out. And I ask the person whose office it is, oh, what is Rodriguez in for? And he types in his number, his name, and he turns the monitor toward me and like in capital letters blinking there, it says murder. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm going to be asking, and they're going to put me in a room with this guy, just me and him. And I'm asking him things like, do you think hooping might be a form of what the Journal of Homosexuality calls masked anal manipulation? Like, like let's, let's strike that from the list. Uh, but Rodriguez could not have been more accommodating in more ways than one, I guess, more uh, helpful and you must have thought I was a strange person, but on the other hand, this is such a way of life. It's part of life in in prison. It's not. It's like just putting your wallet in your back pocket. It's not thought of as an extreme behavior. It's just what people do, and the guards are used to it. The prisoners are used to it. So for him to be talking about it wasn't particularly bizarre. It was bizarre for me. It was uh, uh, not your average afternoon. But anyway, it was, it was an interesting conversation, and he was very forthcoming and incredibly patient and uh, open. It strikes me that this is a book not just about taboo, but that you yourself, in talking about all these things to all these people, are breaking taboos with a lot of people who may or may not be comfortable with that. So as, as you as an interviewer, you must have some kind of 
odd experiences and I'm wondering how you feel just going up and, and, and talking to these people about this stuff. I I guess that I'm used to it and I or or I just there's some part of me that's broken like the thing that normal the sensor or the 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 light that normally goes off that says this is really inappropriate and you should shut up it's broken so I I don't uh, also I think when when you spend a couple of years I mean I spent a couple of years with my head up other people's asses I mean I just it, it became a normal place to be and 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 a and then, and the taboo just sort of dissolves once you start talking about it. I mean, to, to talk about taboo, one of the one of the chapters is has to do with fecal transplants, mm-hmm. which are very effective for curing uh, a chronic bacterial infection of the colon that can be lethal. And when I started this book, two, you know, it was like two and a half years, going on three years ago. You bring up that topic, people couldn't believe it. It seemed disgusting. It seemed like it should be illegal to take someone else's feces and make a preparation from it and put it into someone else to cure this infection, to get good bacteria to fight the bad bacteria. But the the idea of that was so abhorrent to people. But now that it's been in the media for a, a couple of years, on there's been the New York Times had a front page story. Now the taboo has been dissolved and people can talk about a fecal, oh yeah, a fecal transplant, I heard about that, oh yeah, that's great, it, it, it seems like it's pretty effective, and what that's done is that people who have this chronic ailment are now freed and, and feel more comfortable bringing it up with their doctor, asking about it, like, I've heard about this transplant that, you, know, you can call it bacteria therapy, it's a better euphemism for people, I guess, but ta- the taboo can really stand in the way of medical progress and it can stand in the way of somebody getting the help that they need. So I, I, I love when people can step over a taboo and start talking about things, whether it's sex or death or feces, whatever the taboo is. I think we're, we're uh, I mean, not to say we all need to be going around talking about it 24-7, but there is some, some good to be gained from being able to speak comfortably about what our bodies do and things that happen to them. What you say about the the probiotics industry, I mean, that's now in our faces every time you turn on the TV. Yeah. And, but that's not, as you, in this book, that's not particularly effective. Well, probiotics, I mean, uh, a fecal transplant is a form of quote-unquote probiotics. But a lot of what, like when I spent time with the doctor who does these transplants, he's not the only one. Uh, uh, quite a few physicians do bacteria therapy. Um, and I said, what, you know, these little capsules and things where you're, you're buying probiotics. Mm-hmm. I said, what is in those? And he said, marketing. Because what's the, the, the thing is, you, you, first of all, you don't, um, with a fecal transplant, they don't know which specific bacteria it is. It's just take the whole, it, this, is, this is bacteria that is working properly. And we're going to put that, we're going to give someone antibiotics, wipe clean the slate and put in an ecosystem that seems to work. We don't know which elements of it. We don't know exactly what's going on in there. I mean, it's just in its infancy. Uh, but you need a, a shitload. You need a lot, you know, and, and whether uh, a little bit of it in your yogurt, certainly going through the stomach, a lot of it's going to be killed. So you have to, you have to make sure it's going to be sort of a time release thing. Um, and I spoke with the director of the probiotics research center. I'm not getting the title exactly right. It's in Canada. And I said, I mentioned all of these 
products, hundreds of products, and he said 95% of them haven't been tested on humans and shouldn't be called probiotic because nobody knows. It's one of those situations where it probably can't hurt you. So, and if you think it's, if you're feeling a little better, you know, who am I to say you shouldn't take it? But um, I think it's a lot of claims being made that can't really be substantiated. And it's sort of a naive um, also, the, the stuff that's inside your, your colon, a lot of that bacteria is anaerobic. It doesn't survive when you take it out. So it's, it's not easy to make a product that's got the right anaerobic bacteria to make it in those conditions where they're not exposed to oxygen uh, and somehow get that into food and make it thrive in there and stay alive. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, there's some simple things like lactobacillus as a treatment for yeast infection. That seems to work. That seems to work. Uh, so there's, there are instances where, you know, a simple application of a bacteria does does seem to help. But a lot of what I see making claims to be probiotic doesn't seem to be well substantiated. Mary, as you finished up this book, I'm wondering if you'd just talk about, you know, some of your perceptions before and after, because the the way the books you write and the things you write about are literally life changing and they really you know when I was done reading this book you have a quite different perception of your body and I think it's to a degree it's a lot healthier. Yeah, I, th- I yeah, it is a. Um, it, I think there's there's value in paying a little bit of attention to what goes on once food leaves the plate. You know, we tend to just obsess about it when it's on the plate and take photographs of it and share it. And eating is a is a great joy in most people's lives. But I, uh, it's it seems kind of. I mean, I, it hasn't really changed how I eat in any. I, I'm more aware of things that mostly in the mouth because that's where you actually feel it. It's hard to really know what's going on the rest of the way down the tube. But um, I, I I just I I don't know. I, I like the idea that people might have a, a more of an awareness and, and therefore more of a, maybe a little debt of gratitude to their own bodies. And we, we live in our heads so much. We, we think of ourselves as our minds and, and with some, you know, unless things go wrong, we don't really think about our organs, which are these incredibly precious and miraculous things that we have and that we depend on. And we don't really give them any I don't really give them any thought, and I I, I think it's it's healthy to kind of acknowledge how how what's going on inside you just just on just on principle, just as a sort of a tip of the hat. Hey, thanks for taking care of me. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I I'm not like I'm not like a different person having written about all this, but uh, I definitely feel a little more um, kind of humbled by the stuff that goes on inside me. I've been speaking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Gulp. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, thanks so much. It was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.